Tobias Carlyle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. It's going to be good, dude. All right, fellas, I've pressed the button. I see. Uh, it says we're streaming live. live. Streaming live. Yeah. Uh, it always, it, it gives, I don't know if it buffers or what it does, but it's it's uh, on you just don't know yes it is every time you think that it's not going but it is so welcome to value after hours a four-way <laughs> yeah. session i'm one of your four hosts bill brewster joined by my esteemed colleagues tobias carlisle jake taylor and michael mitchell gentlemen how we doing today living the dream living the dream you like how i threw back that intro nice we it's used to do job. that it's tight that's nice but what yeah. time is it in around the world bill uh, that I don't know, but I do remember our old intro mu- music. Do, 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 do. It still plays in the audio version. It still gets a nice ah. little intro. I could probably find out how to do it through this thing too, as like the the, the holding. But uh, too much work. T- too okay. much work. Too hard. As much as I love that music. What's I happening? Get, like legit intro music. Why don't you pony yeah. up for that? Like two chains or something. So when we come I, on, I, it'll be like y'all. I like the- multiple y'all. The Grace Misa one. I like the uh, what, how we do. Yeah, yeah that good. wasn't that was the outro, wasn't it? It's both. It's it's for all. It's just it's different versions of it, different little riffs. Yeah, that shit was hot. I think we it's, need to get Toby on the piano, and he'll remix that. There you go. And then we'll have something cooking. Toby on yeah. piano, Jake on the guitar, with Bill on vocals, and I'll take the cow- percussion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> more cowbell, tambourine by Mike Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> Anything uh, interesting happening in this market, gents? We were just saying before we went live, it's a little bit quiet at the moment. Uh, never short a quiet market, uh, quiet before the storm. What do you think? What's happening? I don't see storm clouds on the horizon. Uh, Even from you, Hurricane Bill? <laughs> no, but I do like that Bill is getting stronger. That makes me, I take energy from that. Um, also said it was short-lived though, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. That would be unfortunate. Um, I don't know. I Mike and I talked yesterday about using SPACs as like cash substitutes and what your risks are. Uh, I think that there's some probably interesting things to look at there. Um, I don't know. There's, I, I think, uh, same as always. Where are the SPACs? Some, some cheap uh, stuff, some expensive stuff. Yeah. Have the SPACs you know? come back to cash or are there some SPACs back at cash? Cash back. There's some specs around around trust. Yeah, there's some. There's not a lot. I mean, it's, specs have rebounded. Like they, they, and they like I haven't seen them today, but last week they had a pretty good week. And Shama's back in the green on a lot of these things. So it's it's um, they've, they've had a nice rebound. But I don't think it's crazy to use them as a cash alternative. But they will 
correlate to equities in, in a you know liquidity crunch. But outside of liquidity crunch, that actually that's why I spent all last week. We were talking about that, Bill and Toby. What could derail the market? What could derail the economy? I, I just, I spent all week, all weekend, I'm just back and forth in my brain, what could do it? And I finally, Sunday night, I just figured out, I was like, I'm just incredibly bullish. It wasn't, I didn't arrive at bullishness. I arrived at like, I can't figure out why this isn't going to work. Like I just, somebody- negative. Yeah, I'm just, that's really, it really was just the lack of like, okay, keep just subtracting and subtracting and subtracting and subtracting. And just sort of left with everything at the bottom looks pretty good for now. I mean, that's I mean, that, yeah. these valuations, like if you think the 10 year stays at one four, like, it's, yeah. you can pay anything, I mean, anything, 50 times earnings is cheap. Here's the thing though, if you're, if you're, so if you, if you use that Hussman method of assuming uh, mean reversion in the Schiller P back to, you know, the long run average, which is 16 point something. So that may be, that, there's the assumption that we can all argue about, but assuming that you do that, the valuation that you come to or the, or the expected return on the market is now, 0.7% cent, total return, which includes a 1.4% dividend. So that's 0.7% juicy uh, negative on the index <laughs> for the next decade Bullish. to get back to that. So, you know, is that assumption legitimate or not? I don't know, but uh, it's it's been pretty over the very long cycle. It has been reasonably predictive. And, and where it diverges is exactly at these points, like market peaks and troughs. I mean, that, that's, that's presupposing that we're at a peak, right? But yeah. that, that, that may be the indicator. I, I would argue the assumption pretty heavily. Yeah, say so we're, we're definitely closer to the peak than the trough. I mean, that's, you know, are we there or not? We're definitely on that side of it. I mean, that, you know, what, what inning are we in, Bill? Did inning. we change innings in the last week? I, no, I don't know. <laughs> I still think the starter is getting a little tired. We haven't yeah. gone backwards, I don't think. But I, I, I just, I don't know. Biggest, I think you could have a scenario where the economy rips and the market doesn't do well, but like, I don't know with this much money out there. Uh, I just have a hard time buying that rates go up. If, if interest rates are the price of money and there's a huge supply of money looking for a small minority of good ideas, the idea that prices come down, like fundamentally doesn't make sense to me. What about inflation? Like inflation? I, 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 st- I, I didn't look at this. I heard someone say it was at, Early expectations are at five percent. Is that insane? Am I way off base there? No, I think that's right. I, I think that's that's the actual number. I just think the question is: are, do, it, it, the debate isn't whether it's five. The debate is: is that five going to stay five, or is it going to go back to two, or is it you know is it going to go to one, or what's like what's the next? You know, but even at two, if the ten year is one, if the two, if the ten years at one point four, then you're negative. 0.6 real like how sustainable you start, is that you're, you're starting to sound it. like kyle bass yeah don't worry about it kyle bass <laughs> said i think today he said he said real rates are negative 10 percent so he said you're you're like that's he's or, sorry cool. inflation yeah inflation Inflation's is like 12 or something and you're you're real is kind of crazy. is so that like using the shadow stats well no you Just can't watch your cash, cash get torched nickels all nickels doge doge yeah so i don't Specs. know what do you do specs <laughs> at cash backing specs at cash backing is not a bad idea right because you got at least you got you might you might get some mark to market issues in a in a liquidity crisis, but at least the cash is there. It'll get come back to you at some point. I mean, and then you, you know got the some answer. Upside. The answer. This is gonna make Jake. He's gonna love this answer. The answer is buy the shit out of levered equities. Yeah. No. It is. Because your debt is inflate cheaper. the debt away. Yeah, inflate the debt away. It's not crazy. So that may make you upset, but it's not wrong. I get it. Well, that does work. <laughs> that that works. Like if we go into an inflationary environment, you get. Uh, all the 
you know, you get like the cyclicals that are highly levered, like that's the stuff that's going to go bananas. Mm-hmm. Especially if or it's like low cable replacement capex. Yeah. Like if you don't have to pay with new expensive money right. for the capex and you pay back with this, you know, cheap. Capital intensity cuts you. Yeah, especially if it's, if it's truly maintenance and it's not growth, it really starts to cut you. I just, the problem I have with the whole thing is I, there isn't, so everybody wants the prediction, right? And, and it obviously wants to be right. But the problem I have with the whole thing is I've never seen a, a post-pandemic playbook for the U.S. consumer. I've never seen one. If somebody has one, please send it my way. I'd love to take a read, but I don't, it's, it's all like, the, I'm not sure the guesses of anybody, myself included, are any better than anybody else's guesses because we're really in this kind of funky spot of like, people were cooped up for a year, you know, people didn't pay rent. And it's like, and for a time, I, I'm not speaking for the world here, just myself, but for a time I was like, this could get really bad. And so there was this whole, like, and when liquidity was drying up in the markets, I, I thought for my health, it could get bad, but then also the markets, it could get bad. And liquidity could go to zero. And I, I feel like I sort of dodged a bullet, you know? And so now I'm like, I'm kind of like, Hey, you know, really YOLO, not on stocks, but on like, I want to go to a nice restaurant. You know, I, I bought a new minivan, you know, I want it not recently, but last year, <laughs> you know, you like, there's this feeling that you want to, and I don't know how that, if that feeling sticks around for 12 months or 24 months or five years, I have no idea. I mean, you know, I, I felt there were some permanent changes post September 11th. And I just sort of wonder if, if that's the kind of thing that we're looking at here, that we get this economic growth and there's some permanent changes, but you know, in general, I think the real challenge is nobody's seen anything like What it. were the permanent changes after 9-11? Because I feel like 9-11 is the last event that was on this kind of scale. Well, we all travel different, right? It's post 9-11. Yeah. I mean, the, the traveling is just... and It, it took it a couple was, of years to bounce back, right? And then it was yeah back to normal. Well, but then structurally, I mean, we all structurally just travel different. I mean, it just takes longer. It's it's just traveling is, is much less convenient than it, you know, than it was in 1998. You fly now, private, don't you, Mike? Now we have uh, to wear a mask and take our shoes off. It's funny. Yeah, it's funny you say that to me. So I, the only thing I can't do, the only thing I can't do in, in the world that I want to do, I would I would love to fly private. I can't do it. I can't afford to do it. Uh, but even if I could afford to do it, uh, my wife wouldn't let me do it. She's like, she's uh, has socialist tendencies and she's she really believes in the environment. It's like the worst thing you can do for the environment is life. It's so terrible. So, and she doesn't want our kids to think that that's even a thing. So get her on a plane and see what she says. I know she's never been <laughs> on one. So my, my, uh, my job at, at uh, two hedge funds. Just ago, don't, just don't go on one. You'll be fine. I know if you never go, I, my, my old, old boss only traveled private. So every time we go to a board meeting, it'd be on like a, a G550, you know, it's like the dumbest thing, three guys, you know, and I, by the way, half those trips I shouldn't have gone on, but they have to justify, you know, the $40,000 and $10,000 an hour trip. Uh, by putting analysts on there, so I'd fly on it. And I, I have to tell you, it's it's, cool. it's quite nice. It's it's really a different, uh, you know, when, when like the you just drive right up and the pilot grabs your bag and puts it on for you, and then you sit there and you like do anything you want, and then it, you know pretty soon you're, you know, it is different. But I, I I'm not taking my wife on a private plane. She still won't let us fly on a private plane. That's the one thing I can't do. Everything else, I can get any minivan in the world I want, but I can't fly. I think that's the only thing that I would really risk a lot for is to be able to level up to to fly private. It's nice. Like if Curate Part 2 comes around and we're on the phone and you're like, get this bigger. thing hard. Yeah, it would probably need to be like private would be the next level up. So, so, so tell me what you some calls. what you want. <laughs> YOLO call so you can uh, get, the, get the Uber premium NetJets membership. At least like, you know, and 
enough calls that you could level up your life, but not so many that you would level down your life. That would maybe be how I would think about that. I don't know. It was so so dumb on curate. I was writing those puts feeling like a hero and it worked out quite well. I, it was the stupidest move. I should have bought the calls. Like what, Dude. I, you had the trade. What are you doing? Like, no, like, no, no, wait. What are you doing? Why don't, will you talk about why you did that? Uh, cause that yeah. Cause I think that that's yeah. an interesting insight that you had into option pricing. Yeah. When we were talking about it. So <clears throat> for me with options, um, I view options, especially like, you know, short-term options as being, uh, Price perfectly efficiently, mathematically, and, it, and it's priced based on historical volatility. And and so when I when I look at options, and I almost never buy them, and I almost never sell them. When I look at them, I think I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Ben uh, DJ Deval, Ben Pfeiffer, his name. I, I just in my mind, I assume that when I'm buying or selling an option, I'm buying or selling it to or from him, and he's a lot smarter than I am, and that's his entire job, right? So. I only venture when I think that there's a chance that I know something that Ben doesn't know, right? And so it's it's something in the business or in the world or in the security changes and structurally changes what you think the future pricing of that option is going to be. And so the, the models that price options, the computers that trade those, trade them perfectly based on historical information. But if the future is gonna look very different, by the way, that's just lifted from Greenblatt. That's not me. I mean, that's like directly from the pages of Ecomedia Stock Exchange. So for, curate and for these spins and special dividends. So the options price based on the value of the equity, if the value of the equity is going to be returned to you in cash, if it's going to be given to you in a, a different security, like a security in a different type of a business, then that you, you can. So what I saw specifically in curate is it was a $10 common before this entire event happened. I could write a put that struck it, struck at 10 bucks, $2.35. So think of it as a 23% premium and it was about 18 months of duration. So forgetting whether that was a good price, 23% for 18 months was a good price or a bad price. Forgetting that for a second, what I knew was um, if you if you just waited like a month, they were going to send back $4 of your, was it, what was it, $4.50 bill? The $3 yeah. preferred and $1.50 yeah, cash. Yeah. So in my mind, I was like, well, I'm not insuring $10 of equity here. I'm, I'm insuring like $5.50 of equity. So now you're paying me $2.35 to insure $5.50 in equity that I feel pretty good about. That's two times earnings. And by the way, you give me that premium. And then the thing does, you know, crater. It's like I basically am buying stock at one times earnings. Is that a good price? I was like, well, that makes sense to me to do that. And so, and then I also had the view, as you know, as you shared, that uh, there was a good chance more capital could be coming back. So, and sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So instead of insuring 10, which is how the, the options market was pricing it, I was insuring immediately after this event, 550 in equity value. And then we got another $1.50. So actually now that puts only insuring $4 of, of equity value. And it's a $22.35 premium. So it's like a 60% interest rate to insure that for 18 months. It just seemed like that was probably mispriced. And then now, of course, because the equity went up, that's basically a work security. So it was, um, that was a nice payday. I wrote that, I think, 40,000 times, something like that. It ended up being pretty good. It worked out. It worked out. Was that too much? Should I not should I have if, disclosed that information? No, so in no. that scenario, in that scenario, you're, uh, you're trying to clip out the vol rather than like buying yes. it. Uh, you, you didn't want to pay the vol on it. Yeah, that I, I, I probably could have, I mean, if, if I would have got, if I would go back and like do a, do a now postmortem, I, I think the conclusion I would have come to is like, if you really believe, you have to understand too, I had, 
45% of my invested assets in the common as well. So if you added in the puts, if they got exercised, even after the, if you added the puts in after all the distributions, my exposure to the common would have still been like 35% of my book. And the problem is it's 35% if it doesn't work, right? So it's like the worst case. So psych psychologically it kind of messed with my head, but I think if I did my post more and went through this again, I think the conclusion I would have come to is like, you're an idiot if you really believe in this don't put your exposure on the put, put your exposure on the call and just burn the premium. And if it works, then you're gonna get the distributions. You get, you get access to those distributions through the call because the, the, uh, the calls adjust, all the options adjust when the distributions are big enough. So you get, you get exposure to that. And then of course you can get leverage you know, on the ups instead of thinking that the puts were mispriced. And I, I can tell you the puts were wildly mispriced. It's very rare that that happens, but they were wildly mispriced. I think they probably should have been 50 cents, 40 cents, and they were trading for 235. So it seemed like a pretty good short. That was basically my, my only real short last year. Um, and it ended up working out pretty well. But I, I think the answer would have been to buy the calls uh, rather than the puts. But you can find those. When you see these spins and splits, you know, the, actually with AT&T Disca, that's if you were going to do something, that's probably the play is play it through the options. I mean, you know, you could buy leaps on T for like nothing. That was something I was looking at. I haven't done anything with it, but um, those options on big events can be wildly mispriced. I mean, wildly mispriced. I think options in general are not mispriced. I think you have people like Ben who figure that out really quick and they can take advantage of those mispricings. But if there's a big change in the underlying business or like in Curate, there wasn't a change in the business. There was just this huge change in how the equity was constructed, which by the way, I tweeted this out last week. Shout out to Liberty. I mean, that's fucking unbelievable what they did. I mean, that, those preferreds are trading for 16 and a half times earnings right now, 16 and a half times cash flow, and the common's still at like four. It's just, a, hmm. that worked. You know, so they, where the yield, are they trading, like 110? They're at 110, the yield, yield to redemption, and this is the 10-year out redemption, I'm assuming, not the five-year redemption option. You go out to the 10-year option, I think it's like 6.1. So huh. it's about 6.1 yield to worst. If you just invert that into a multiple, it's probably close to 17 times now. Dude, you know what's crazy? Those traded down to 88 and yeah. the common traded down to like 588. You want to know what's worse? Let's talk about our L's. So I sold them at 91, the ones I got. I remember when you did that. Yeah, because they, they so but it, was, it was taxes, right? It doesn't so they, matter very much. Yeah, I, I do know, remember it, when you did but that. They, so my basis in those was allocated at uh, like 117 or something. They had the basis allocated, or maybe 107. So I had this big short-term loss in them. I was like, awesome, I need short-term losses. So I sold them. And they like literally the second that my sale cleared, they went to like 98 or something, something like that. And then I was smart enough, I bought them all back and more. You know who um <laughs> you know who uh called that right is Sir Baby Six. He was like Oh yeah, Sir Baby. When smart uh dude. when those prefs went down, he was like, This is the bet. I just I, I never saw the juice in the press. That was the problem for well, me. Well, to be honest, the bet was actually just to take all your proceeds from the prep and put in the common. I mean, it was a four yeah. bagger from the bottom or three bagger from the bottom, I think now. So that, that actually was the, that the common is the place to be, but the press were, if you were just looking for safety and yield, the press were great. I'm a little pissed that the preps are now 110 because I was using them as a cash proxy and at 110, I'm no longer using them as a cash proxy. So they're a nice security. So anyway, that's, that's put writing. It should have been call buying. It was put writing. It worked. Paid call buying is a little more risky though in that situation. Yeah. Well, it depends on the scenario, right? Yeah, like if say, got, it depends on what happens. <laughs> if there's a lot of vol in the stock, I like I like writing puts when there's something that I know really well and the, everything there's some little crisis, something falls over, and then you write them get a little bit cheaper 
than you would otherwise get them. Maybe they're not exactly where you want to buy them. And I like calls or leaps where uh, the market hasn't done anything for a long time and it's in a very good stock that keeps on the underlying business is compounding away. It's just that it got expensive, you know, 10 years ago and it's just done nothing. So there's no vol in the stock at all. It's completely quiet. Nobody wants to buy the options and you buy the leaps with two years out where it's kind of getting to that point where it's getting silly cheap and then you get the big moves I've found from those. All right, so let me throw this one at you. The homie Bluth Capital, uh, we, we went to dinner a couple nights ago, and he, he threw this one out. Ford, super low implied volatility, working on an EV that could be pretty damn impressive. What happens if Ford turns into an EV stock and you own some low-vol calls? That would I mean, work. I don't know. It might work. Right? I don't know. That's kind of one of those scenarios. He was just like, I'm not saying that, you know, it's like this slam dunk trade, but it's one of those that like, you know, you stock starts going up and your vol could go up too. That's a pretty nice combination in options world. Yeah. Are you going to own none? I will AMC. own none. I'm just saying. You're not tempted to play AMC? It's that all the vaults in there right now. I got my face <laughs> ripped off. In, well, I got ripped off in Tesla. That was the highest volume that I've. It, just like last year or two we're years ago. To, what were you trying to do in it? Oh, I was just trying to fuck around and like skim premium, you know, like selling, selling spreads at the wrong time. And like, I, cause I can't get myself to buy the options when there's that much vol. Cause I'm just like convinced yeah. that vol crush is going to screw me. So then my brain, rather than saying, well, this is too hard, you know, cause it's like my retirement account and I treat it like a dog that I hate. Uh, you know, I'm just like, well, I'll just sell the options. Who cares? Right. Well, turns out that hurt my returns in that account. <laughs> the, the best book to read about this, because I saw the question come through, is uh, just read Greenblatt's yellow book, uh, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, or How to Be a Stock Market Genius, whatever it is. If you really want to nerd out, you could read, uh, you yeah, you could read like genius. Nathan Berg on uh, options, volatility, and pricing, but don't, don't do that. There's better places to spend your time. The yellow book gets I see you those there. questions that like Ben is like, does it? Yeah. I see those questions Ben will post. I'm like, hey, you know, you want to be a junior analyst in my firm. Here's a, a interview question that you ask. And every single one of those, I'm like, I have no fucking idea what you're even <laughs> talking about in this question. Like, if you gave me that, I would be like, can I make you a coffee? You know, like, I, I can't, I don't know how to answer that question. So I just stick to the one for stupid people. Yeah. It, gets you the, it gets you most of what you need. Yeah, that's a good book. You don't need to know the option value mechanics so much as you need to know what happens if the underlying moves in the direction that you think it could move in a material way that is not accounted for in the option, in the normal distribution of the option pricing that's used to calculate the, the current price. Said perfectly. And, and to th- the beginners out there, you also got to know how much volatility is in the option because it is easy to pick the right strike and still lose money or theoretically right the right strike you wouldn't lose money in but it, if, you, if you lose a lot of volatility out of your option you can be right on the direction and still lose money is what i'm trying to say mm-hmm. so i don't know how all these robin hood kids are doing this stuff like vol- like stocks are hard options like next level shit well everything's been going up yeah so you buy the calls and everything goes up and like it gets to this point in the market where you know i'm i i left long ago uh JT probably left before I did. There's not many other, you know, all the value guys are kind of gone. And then uh, the only people left are fearless, like kind of dancing on the edge of the cliff. And uh, and if you buy at that point and it keeps on going up from there, then you make a lot of money because there's no one there to kind of push the options back into line. 
like the skews massive we need a, a theory about this something about how i buy and then i expect to like find somebody dumber than me to buy it for me we need one of those is there a theory that explains this i don't know there's <laughs> still working on it yeah. i still think I still I think these compounders that are like three to five percent free cash flow yields can really work here. That's like you a get, fang type names. Yeah, and I mean Fang-G. like yeah, I mean I don't own it, but I, I can see why people own Transdime. Um, I can see why people own I mean, I do own Disney. I think Disney is not like easy to swallow valuation wise to me, but I, I see why like I know why I own it. Um I mean this universal music group asset is a really interesting asset. Um, I just, there's some of these things that I just think can work. It's got to be high return on capital. You got to have massive reinvestment runways and you got to be right. So margins, that's it. <laughs> Figure those out. Let Easy. us know. Lay up. No <laughs> I think there, I think there are some, there are, I think there are quite a few of those around in the market. I think they're like fast and all. I haven't stuff. looked where fast and all trades. I bet fast and all is fine from here. If they can reinvest, because those a- those assets just haven't gotten the bid. You know what I mean? Like they're not like the crazy bid assets. They're more like if rates go up, you're kind of screwed. But if you're playing a wealth preservation game, I understand betting on that. As there's money everywhere, like everywhere. I was just as you're remarking this, I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, UMG is like 20 times EBITDA. I'm like, why would you pay 20 times? I mean, why would you pay that? And the answer is well, interest rates are 1.4, which is why you can pay 20 times. But it got me thinking there is just this is part of that other conversation about what could derail it and i guess interest rates is the only answer there is money everywhere my business partner is going out to buy private assets and coatings and restaurants and the bids are insane like you think housing is insane and it is you know you get these offers at or above asking a lot of cases and we hear all these anecdotes but private business is the same thing shows up to buy assets that he's qualified for has the money for offers a good price and is like sorry dude there was like eight bids over offer for this restaurant franchise group he was bidding to buy in, in Dallas. Yeah, bid, really bidding at nice. the offer, that's an insult. Yeah, that's an no, insult. seriously, in all, it's, in all seriousness, I mean, it's, it's, it's every, there's just so much money out there. It blows me away. So you're probably right on UMG. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, it's 20 times EBITDA, but the answer is probably, you know, why, why wouldn't it go to 25? Like, why not? Go to 30? Yeah, well, double digit growth for a long time and high returns on capital yeah. can work. There's well. a lot of ways to win. Um, yeah, there's a lot of ways to win. I, my mom is in Scottsdale, realtor. Shout out to her. Uh, the stories she tells me are insane right now with the housing. Like she's, she is going around door knocking on behalf of clients and then hoping that somebody hasn't already done it. Like that's crazy. There is no inventory out there. Yeah. That's the problem. That's the problem. I, I have this belief that I, this it's my hope, please home builders do it. But I have this belief that home builders like to build. So my guess is, is that they start building again. It solves this inventory problem. But in housing right now, inventory is a very, real problem there's just not a lot of inventory i mean you're seeing it in pricing and you're, you're seeing builders defer uh starts it's so my hope is is that changes but i feel bad for your mom i mean there's just nothing it's and it's realtors are losing on that right because there's if there's no vault there's no inventory there's no transactions and and guys who do contractors who do repair and remodel those guys their business is down and my guy I, I posted this on twitter today my my um i, I can get him on a spaces he's a really nice guy but he's He's only Northern Colorado. And so I asked him about business with me. He's like, you must be slaying it. He's like, no, you don't understand. There is one third of the normal inventory at this point in the year that we, that we would expect to see. And so my call volume, people only call me when they buy a house that the existing home they want to move into and they want to remodel. 
like, my calls are down 60%, 70%. Nobody's calling because there's no houses for sale. He's like, oh, on the one hand, you start building new homes, then you'll get moved out, move up. And so he thinks that existing will start to turn. So he's like, the demand is there, but you just, it, when, when homes don't transact, people just don't you know, remodel. So Why are they not transacting? Because it's still, everybody's still under COVID restrictions. There's, there's not, so we don't have enough homes in the country. So Bill, you, you look like you're about to jump in. You can jump in anytime, but we no, don't have I, I'll homes. tell you exactly what happened with us. I had a realtor that called me. She gave me an unsolicited offer on the plot of land that we bought that was 70% higher than we bought it in October. <laughs> and I said to her, I said to her, I was like, okay, like I, I respect that you're trying to make a transaction happen. So here's how you can make that transaction happen. Bring me another plot of land that I'll be happy with exactly. that I yeah. can actually afford so because the problem with this, and she didn't like how I said this, but it, it, I did. And it's the truth is I was like, you're the only one that makes out okay on this because you're going to make 6% on the transaction on the, on the front and back end. And I'm the one that's going to lose 6% of the equity value of, you know, the total transaction size and the size is higher. Like I simply don't want to pay that much just to make a transaction happen. So Fairs. you can get creative. I'm down to do it, but I'm not just going to do it. Yeah. That's a problem. And you sell your house where you sell your land. Now where are you going to build? Like, you know, that's, that's why homes aren't, homes aren't moving. Existing homes aren't moving is because where are they going to move to? Right. It's like my wife wouldn't let me sell our home in Fort Collins unless I presented her with a, another home that she liked even more, in which case it'd probably still be a discussion, but there's nothing for sale. I mean, that's the problem. Like I can't sell our home because I wouldn't have anywhere to move us. And my wife's not going to move into the apartment. Somebody out there that's asking, well, why don't you rent? The answer is because I try to make my wife happy every day and she doesn't Smart want man. to. That's Smart it. You know, <laughs> that's so the answer. I had lunch with Greenwald last week. Greenwald, cap shout out. He's just the nicest guy in the world. He did that. He never did that. He, he, he buys homes for a living. He bought a home, lived in it, and then he just sold it and he's renting now for the first time in his life. So that does happen. He's also not married, doesn't have kids. That's not happening in my house. Doesn't sound like it's happening in the Brewster house. Yeah, you're not a value investor until you've sold your house and told your pregnant wife you're going to be renting for a little while. That's when you're and the you, real thing. And you lived in it for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. And then you lose yeah, half yeah, your right. shit when she leaves and you think, ah, oh, value oh, I investing. Made out, I made out. I made out. I made out like a bandit on that one. Good deal. Good trade. Good trade. Hey, T, you want to do some veggies just before we run out of time? Yeah, sure. So um, this is going to be titled uh, Real Estate Gravity. And uh, it's... That was good timing. Good segue. Yeah, right. Maybe it's helpful. I don't know. So in in gravity, the you know it's, it's inversely proportional to the distance squared of of the the sphere or body that is emitting it right and i always wondered i don't know if you guys ever did but like why is it squared like what's what's the mathematical relationship that's happening there that that we end up with that that uh, equation maybe i'm the only one who's wondering that but uh <laughs> it's so, some newtonian but, physics there uh, well it's it's, it's actually kind of simple if uh i'll try to explain it um so if you imagine that, that gravity is like spread out around a sphere in like sort of like a light bulb emitting light around it. And as you move further and further out, out away from it, you uh, that same amount of gravity has to be then spread over that say an, an increasing surface area because the surface area moves up as it as you make a bigger sphere, right? So let's imagine a um, like a beach ball and you have a certain amount of paint that you have in a little can, and you have to spread that over the beach ball. Well, at one size, you can get a thickness to it 
right? A certain thickness. But as you inflate the beach ball like to 2x, it's actually 4x the amount of, of surface area now on that beach ball. And you have to spread the same amount of, of gravity paint around it. So that's why it's a, the relationship is what it is. Okay. So it turns out that, that attractive locations in real estate in the world, mobility, are like large planets. And there's actually this, this mathematical, like sort of natural law to it that uh, researchers from ETH, Zurich, MIT, and Santa Fe Institute found. And they used anonymized aggregated uh, mobility data from cities all around the globe. And what they found was that, the, that there's, there's, a two, two, there's a law that governs like basically like how uh, the number of visitors to any location. And it's related to how far they're traveling and, and how often they, uh, they visit that location. So it's kind of intuitive. Like people visit places more frequently when it's a shorter distance. And it just so happens that it follows that same natural law of gravity where it's a, it's a square of the, uh, it's the inverse of the square. Um, and so the, uh, the, uh, if, so if you can imagine what this is, why this is helpful is that it gives sort of a baseline in cities where you can see certain areas are under or overperforming what would be expected of based on the distance and the, and the, the number of travelers that, that are moving around. Um, and so it can also really probably help city planners to, to figure out like, okay, where do we put certain amenities? Um, how should we set up public space, um, parks, things like that? Um, and then also in a conform public transit. So, you know, my favorite thing is when you can find something in the natural world, like something mathematical or physics based, and then find sort of the human analog to it, um, where that same, the same principles, the same properties hold. Um, and I thought this was kind of a, kind of an interesting one for real estate people and maybe a new way of looking at it. You should trade using Fibonacci sequences. Um, uh, the, uh, I'm glad that that joke went well. Uh, I, I guess, is that controlled for like, uh, I, I don't fully understand the analogy. I'm sorry, but like, cause I'm, I'm just thinking like the amount of visitors, there's such a high density among the coast, right. And like water did they like control for certain things? I'm just trying to really understand what you're saying. Uh, I think the research, I didn't see anything that specific, specifically pinpointed like, you know, water or things like that. But um, I, I think what they're saying is that the, you, there's a baseline of what to expect based on how far away that people are from it and the number of trips that they make. And that can then tell you, what the likelihood is of the attractiveness of it, right? Okay. And, so, and also, like for instance, yeah. if you wanted to build like Disney World, you would maybe say, okay, well, this is these are the surrounding populations and the roads that come in. So, probabilistically, this is where you should think about building. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like how many how many trips do those people take, and uh, how far away are they? Okay. Right? And it, it decays at that same square root proportion as gravity does. Huh. That's interesting. All right. Cool. It clicked. Thank you. <laughs> That's my, that just made my day. Can you use it as a value tool? Like, can you say that these things are, you know, this thing's further away from this thing. Therefore it should be a valuation sort of relationship should exist between them. I, I think 
maybe idealistically, it might be something that you could infer that, that this is an underperforming asset relative to the number of visitors that you would expect from a baseline of, of what the math would tell you. And maybe that there's something that you need to do to, like it could more easily be fixed potentially. I wonder if this is kind of why Orlando took off. Cause if you just think of like Orlando in a vacuum, I know Disney was there, but like, that is like a shitty part of the U S to just like <laughs> pick a city. Send all of your hate mail to, uh, to hey, again. Orlando. I'll take <laughs> Central Florida hate mail. I will take and field. <laughs> I will be happy to debate this. <laughs> but I wonder, because there's a lot of interstates, like it, it makes a lot of sense. It's really centrally located and, and whatnot. I, I actually, I think Orlando's a nice city now. It's just kind of why it's there. I don't understand. But this probably has something to do with it. Yeah, what's interesting is that it, it regardless of where in the world, because they had like, you know, London, Japan, Chicago, I think was one of them. Like, so it's sort of just a human phenomena that huh. it, it's not uh, any particular culture. Hmm. It's fascinating. People are fascinating. It's, it's, I do these walks every day for an hour. It's just sort of my meditation time. And it's just like time for me to reset my psychology every day because my psychology will get messed up. And by the way, Twitter is like the worst for psychology. It just like messes with your head. And so you sort of like I, this hour that I walk, I was thinking today on my walk, I was like, it's just people are just funny. And they just, you know, they're in, so, in some ways just so predictable and in, in other ways just completely insane. And I love them. They're my people. But People are crazy. So your story predictably that's insane. Yeah, predictably insane. That's a good way to describe it. Given that, given that there's this sort of, uh, there's probably a mania in housing at the moment, right? Is that fair? Or am I, am I, does that just fly in the face of everything we've just said? No, I think I you're. Know. I think you're right when it comes to like Phoenix. I don't know if you're right all over. Like I, I think that the supply shortage drives more than maybe yeah. you could say as a mania. But I, if it normalizes and and goes down quite a bit, I, I will not. I, I don't dispute what you're saying that prices are are stiff right now for sure. But it, well, there's a little bit of something going on in the stock market too, right? There's something happening in the stock market. You got to give me that at least. Like I think when's the last time yet? I, I, dude, I do. I do give you that. But I'm just saying, like, when's the last time you didn't think there was something going on in the stock market? Like, real talk. Like, when's 2014, the last time? You, yeah, 2015. So, March, <laughs> yeah. March 2020. <laughs> and, uh, you know, secondhand cars explosion in pricing of secondhand cars. Like, just about any series that I can think of, everything's taken off. So, if you, you dump a whole lot of money in the economy, it turns out that that results in the individual things being valued more highly in the units that have been released into the economy. So you, you guys, you don't, think, <laughs> you don't think that there's can, some can we just, reckoning from this at some second, point? Can we just talk about like real quick, the equity market was pretty smart to sniff that out like a while ago, right? Because ultimately who ends up winning are the owners like of those 2010 businesses. or what do you, when did it sniff? That it, out? Yeah, it's been right for a long time. I mean, I think underlying, Dude, underlying earnings growth and the return on, well, we'll see. We'll see. The last print we have for earnings is like 1230, I think, 1231 for the S&P 500. I was trying to look at it this morning and it's it's like down 34% from its peak. So clearly the first Q, Q quarter is going to be some different numbers. We've probably seen a fair bit of recovery there. It's still expensive. Like those, the, the reason I talk about Schiller rather than the single year PE is that it's smoothed over a decade. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are the comps of 
2020 and 2021. They're almost trying to throw them away and go back to 2019. I don't know. But there was that argument for a long time that Schiller didn't work because 2008 sucks so bad. Right. I mean, that's the whole point of it. And then it rolled off and they said, now you're going to see it start getting cheaper again. And like, market doesn't look cheap to me. Really? (laughs) Not historically cheap. I mean, it's only cheap if you you compare it to interest rates. That's the only, frankly, it's the only argument I've heard that makes any sense. And so the pitch is going to be- I got to give like, like Richard Sosa, he does a podcast and I just listened. There's a guy, I think it's like episode 17. I don't know. The guy pitched Thrive. What I would say, if like you're a young aspiring value investor and you hear us talking like this, that dude called up the company and said, can I get a list of all of the shareholders from your company? The company sent him the list. They were obligated by law. He then called each individual person and said, I know that you may have warrants from the DEX debt that you own, like DEX, like Yellow Pages and DEX. I'd like to buy the warrants off you. People had no idea what they were selling this guy. This guy just vacuumed up warrants that are like not traded. So there's like stuff to do. I guess that, that, and like, there's like, there's always something going on. That's, so if you're young and you hear us curmudgeon guys saying that the stock market's not cheap, it doesn't mean don't do work. Like Mike changed his life by cold calling Kyle, basically. There's shit to do. I agree. But Mike doesn't take, sorry, JT, go. I was just going to say, I've, I've, I've probably never been more bottom up than I am right now. But we've got Mike Mitchell doesn't take any beta risk. I, I have no, I have no, um, I, I have market exposure through my, through my wife's uh, uh, 403B because she works for a hospital. So I have, I have market exposure there, but otherwise I basically own one stock and Bill's right. It's, it was just, um, God, it was just, I mean, imagine, like, it's just funny how things work. Like imagine if you didn't answer the phone or, you know, it, it, I guess maybe I would have put more money in curate who knows. But uh, yeah, it's funny how things work, man. And, and Bill's not wrong. If you're young and you're looking, the, the money, in my opinion, is made when you've got a unique piece of information, right? It's not, that doesn't mean like that you know something about the company or that you know, like it's not inside information. It's not what I'm saying, but you've got a unique piece of information. So to Bill's example, the guy was, was cold calling a shareholder list from Sosa's podcast he had a unique insight and the unique insight was I might be able to buy this from somebody who has no idea that they even own it. And I have a view that this could be wildly valuable. My unique insight was that I called Kyle and I actually thought Kyle knew what he was talking about. I thought he was smart. I thought he was going to make me money. So, and that that ended up being a pretty unique insight. You can find things to do. You can find unique insights. And and by the way, you don't have to be a professional. I mean, I was retired when I did that. I don't don't know what this guy, you don't have to be, you don't need the resources. In fact, I would argue that those resources, like the expert networks Bill was talking about, everybody's using those. Like that's not a unique piece of like, you're not going to get unique insights from those. You're going to hear what everybody else is hearing, which might be useful, but it's not going to be unique. But to Bill's point, you can find things to do. It just, it takes a lot of work and takes a lot of creativity. And I'm not, I, I don't dispute that there's stuff to do. I'm just saying that and in some ways I'm talking more to the, like the, the people who are speculating in AMC or on that sort of stuff. Like, no, that, that's crazy. That's crazy. You're playing the wrong game there. You're playing a game where you're going to get dusted at some point. If you're the kind of kid who's calling up people to buy their, their warrants on some forgotten deal, like that's, that's quite a high level of sophistication to be sort of doing that sort of thing. And you've, you've figured something out. That's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 Yeah
Yeah, AMC, you know. if you put a gun to my head and said, do something, I'd try to sell the longest dated out of the money leaps that I could. And they'd be calls and I'd be covered on it. It'd be some sort of call spread and you I'd know, sell them. And I just try to have a ton of time. The trade with GameStop, actually, uh, a buddy of mine, BWK Cap is doing this. He was selling like $3 puts or something. And he was getting like 10%. He was getting 30, 40, 50 cents. And these are like one week puts because the ball got some nuts. So he's like, look, they have more cash per share than this. Uh, yeah. Like two weeks out, he was like stripping premium out of writing puts that were, when the stock was like 300, by the way, he was like stripping people for some reason were, were paying him 30 cents to underwrite like a $3 strike that expired in like a week or two weeks. And you can't pull Smart. out a ton of money doing that, but you could, hey, I pulled out 20, 30 grand. Like, it's just a real number. You know, moves the needle. Is that like I wonder if- buying shark attack insurance or something? Like, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I what's and the you never know. Like you never know with like banks and machines, like how they're trying to, you know, it's, it's always like when people would look at Valpost's 13F, it's like, it does, that tells you part of the story, but it doesn't tell you the whole story. Cause then what you're, what you're seeing on the 13F may be a hedge, you know, it may be a macro bet. He may have 15 different derivatives around it that you just don't see. He may have some international longs or shorts against it. You know, some, whoever was selling those puts that, you know, whoever was buying those puts from, uh, from my buddy BWK was selling, they may have just had some, we- it may have been some weird, hedging thing that i just don't understand but just sitting back as a fundamental guy i'm like dude i think after you know they had like four dollars a share in cash you can underwrite three bucks a share for two weeks on a 300 stock and make 10 percent. like doesn't strike me as a bad idea if you're that far out of the money do you even have much gamma in those you got no delta no i don't think so what do you even have 30 cents of premium vol you must have a lot of vol risk that's what you got <laughs> Must be the ball risk. I mean, really, it must be the ball risk. But you know, I don't know why. Because right, that's the only Greek that can move. I would think because you're so damn. I mean, you're so far out of the money. I was just, I was thinking in my head, maybe you're trying to do like a reverse gamma squeeze or something. But I don't even think there's enough gamma there. I'm, you, you're talking about the person buying them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Why is somebody buying them there? Yeah. Right. Okay. You got to be like getting longer vol. Well, you just like you, you, the person buying them is like, you know what? This thing could be a donut and uh, these things going to pay off like that massively if I can get, uh, I don't know. It's not a very good argument. But... Yeah. Yeah. I, be, I want my $3 back. Yeah. I could 10 well, bag if this thing goes to zero. So, yeah. think of, so think of me like, so I, I wrote those puts on Curate for 235 and premium, right? Right now on screen, there is no bid and the offer is 25 cents. If I want to unwind them, I can unwind them for 25 cents right now. And I would take, right, my account has some uh, margin capacity that's been taken out mm. as a result of these calls. Yeah, you're freeing so up capital. I could buy my way out sense. of that for 25 cents and I, and I already made a ton of money. So what do I care? So, mm. And that, that could have been the strategy of the government. The put is like, look, I'll just go ahead and sell these back to you. And then I can just free up my account from that. And I've got a gain, so it doesn't really matter. I'm happy to give it up. For me, I don't want to give it up. So right now it's, it's short term and it's going to expire worthless. What do I care? And I don't, I don't go on margin anyway. But I could see a scenario where somebody's already made so much money that they come in and buy a security where to you, it doesn't make sense, but to them it's freeing up capital or something else. Hmm. Good answer. Go longer on the super out of the money calls on the other direction. <laughs> I like, I like doing this little, I like selling puts about a quarter out. So you got about a quarter to run and then trying to get about, 40 to 45 percent uh internal rate of return on them which ends up being about 10 percent return on them because i think that there's this the the front the the quarter that you're in right now is always pretty heavily traded and then there are people looking at leaps and there are people looking at to year end and there are all these 
points where people are looking, but the next quarter I've found is often a good one for pricing for whatever reason. When would you, you roll take on? A little bit. Well, or do you I just let not. them expire? I'm just looking at them like, yeah, I'm just looking at them like this is a special situation that I can take advantage of. And then the, the opportunity set will change when it comes to the next quarter. It'll be a different set of stocks and a different strike on the options. Different. It's not, I don't plan on systematically staying in the same position for an extended period of time. Then you layer on like a value screen on top of that. I start with the value screen. Yeah. So I'm only looking at stuff that's undervalued. I'm only looking at stuff that's got no volatility in it. That's for the leaps. Well, for the puts, it's the other way around. It's like they're already undervalued. There's a price at which I'll buy them. And then I'll write my puts. You know, so it makes sense given the premium that I get and the, where I see the value in a worst case scenario. So you can, and then on top of that, you got to get the decent return in a IRR. Yeah. Only thing that sucks about that is sometimes you win by the stock ripping, but you don't have enough Delta exposure to that. Right. So like, you're almost like, it's kind of cash inefficient. I, I don't, I like that strategy, but it's just that's sort of how you lose in that one. You know, it's the, the stock's not quite cheap enough for me to buy it there, but yeah. I can see there's a lot of vol and I can see that if it got down mm. to this price and I'm not, then you'd be fine. And I just want to get paid at that point for like a figured out it's cheaper, figured out it's got vol in it. I can get paid if it falls to the price where I want to buy it, then I've been paid to buy it there. And that's, that's great. If it doesn't, then I've done something. Presumably you have cash in this scenario, right? Cause you don't want to like sell something about it. I would it. never do it. Maybe naked. it works. Yeah. Maybe cash covered. Yeah. yeah. It's always, it's always cash covered. Yeah. And it's always size to the notional, uh, you know, so it's makes sense for my portfolio. I'm not doing any of that stuff now. I've got other things that I run that I don't do that. But before I had those things that I was running, I, I I did do that a lot. Do you remember the night we met? Do you remember what we talked about? It was very no. impactful to me. <laughs> you obviously meant more to me than I meant to you. But uh, I, I drank more than you had. We, we basically no, just crushed wearing, wine on a roof and talked about option strategies for a long time. <laughs> oh, good. That's a good. Uh, that's good. Yeah. Probably, probably something that should be stated is anybody listening who does not have a lot of experience with options, if you're going to sell puts, understand the big risk that you're taking is there is a liquidity crunch and that the market just vomits and you it's an opportunity cost. You have to buy the security that you promised to buy. And there yeah. might be 50 other securities you'd rather own, but you can't because your money's tied up because you wrote those puts. So also, don't the, trade options. Yeah, like, for just real. don't trade. You know what? Even better. Just Degenerate gambler shit. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you're selling puts, you're taking uh, equity downside risk. Correct. And you're probably not getting paid enough Correct. to do it. But if you are if you have a view about the valuation and there's a point at which you would like to buy it and you want to force yourself to buy it at that point in time because you're worried so you that you're it. going to be behaviorally, you might panic or something at the time, this is a way to force yourself to buy it. Ironically, the best time to sell puts was like March and April of 2020. Like that was the time that you could, because you were almost guaranteed to get the premium. The problem was I did that. You should have been buying them. That's right. That's exactly yeah. the problem. So the best time to do it is actually the time you should just be getting along the stock. Because you just, I, I would have made a lot more money if I would have just turned around and bought comments. That's true. I do like the idea of buying leaps like here. Right. Where you're just like, all right, whatever. I got two years. If something, you know, gets burned. The other, the other alternative that uh, Jason Buck said to me is you buy out of the money front month puts all the time. And, you know, you're going to burn like consistently, whatever the number is that you want to burn. But when you hit, you're going to hit it big and get cash. Is the that only the, problem spy, with- the spy uh, hedging game that, that, uh, yeah, um, I think like he and Corey are kind of into that. Is that, does Spitznagel? Spitznagel has a paper that used to sit on his site where he described, it's written by one of his 
analysts where he describes uh, a strategy of rolling these ladders of puts. And he says that, uh, and you've got to, you know, none of these strategies make sense without some long pairing to something else. The idea is that you're hedging a book. But the payoff is, you know, this is Chris Cole's kind of, not Chris Cole's strategy, but Chris Cole's overarching philosophy. And he uses the, um, he uses the analogy of the worm rebounding. If you got the worm in there rebounding and feeding it back to MJ, who's like, taking like a whole Dennis lot of shots. Rodman, yeah. You mean? yeah. Uh, Dennis Rodman, yeah. Rodman's rebounding and giving it back to MJ, who's scoring lots of points. But without Rodman re- getting as many rebounds as he does you don't so he's in that scenario cole is rebounding and he's feeding it back to your long strategy to get longer at the right time and that right time yeah. that adds some additional return to your profile and it cuts off your your drawdown so your return profile looks much better jt what do you think of this thought i the reason i kind of like this thought is like you know a lot of us like worship muffet uh, <laughs> yeah yeah the buff dog in the mung machine uh and like but the thing is they were always doing that via float, right? Uh, it w- they weren't actually selling puts. It was sort of a different mechanism, but uh, in the, ensuring that you have some cash in a true drawdown is something that's intriguing to me. And the idea of cash drag gets less attractive the longer I do this. Then you don't want to hold cash. Sorry, JT. JT was just about to say something finally. No, I don't. I mean, you know me, I don't, uh, I try not to overcomplicate it and get too cute and try to over-optimize. And instead, what I'm trying to optimize for is my own psychology and just having the cash makes me more patient to, to be ready to, to make the moves. Like I'm not going to miss it um, because I have, I'm stuck in some, you know, put situation that I was trying to get it, squeeze out some extra, you know, premium along the way. Um, and then I missed the like really big, important move that like you know because i'm stuck there um so because you just never know what the market's going to offer up to you either and when you're going to want that liquidity um so the if you're long on- puts what i'm saying is that when that when that occurs you're bringing the cash in that's right. that's more the scenario that i was thinking of yeah i i get i i mean i understand that that tail risk insurance uh idea and the feeding it back into you and i like in theory it sounds great right and yeah. um well i mean toby you and i've had a little bit of experience with a a vix strategy of call options there which was the same idea right and basically hmm. just bred bled premiums for months yeah. on end and uh yeah. years in my instance didn't have the <laughs> and then there was no fire that uh you know gave us the payday to make up for all of that insurance that we bought um so I don't know. Like the more I'm in this, the longer or longer that I'm in this, the more I'm, uh, I just want to try to keep it as simple as I can and, and make, make it easier moves and, you know, take off the re- reduced complexity. Where were you guys buying VIX calls like North of what 40? No, there's a formula for it. It's like a standard deviation outside of the, where it's, trading but you know it's it's always complicated because you got vix at one level and you've got the uh vix futures at another level and the options are at another level because they're f- options on the futures so it's, it's so I mean, at, at one point you could get um you know this is when like vix was in single digits right like it was it was insane um but you could get a 25 dollar or 25 it's not really dollars but uh, vix 
yeah, unit strike price for like five cents. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you just had incredible gearing on it. If it was to have a, a severe, like, you know, 2008 or even, I guess, 2020 style, just meltdown and VIX jumping to 80 or whatever, like you were, you were going to yeah. get paid a lot. Yeah. And, and I thought it was always kind of structurally mispriced because like, it has to be in a minimum of five cents for it, I think. Um, yeah. And so like, there was a weird structural hmm. thing in that market where it was like, it just sold for five cents, but like, that wasn't really a price that necessarily made more sense than something else. Um, so I don't know. I felt, it didn't feel stupid at the time. <laughs> yeah. The, the tough thing about that strategy is you've got to be mentally comfortable with the bleed, right? You've got to be okay. Bleeding premium over and over and over and over and over again. Then someday you're in theory should hit it out of the park. Right. Then you just kind of notice sell and reverse at the right time. <laughs> you need to be long enough on, on the long side of your book needs to be giving you enough uh, income, you know, yep. through dividends or whatever that you kind of don't really notice that you're banning that premium all the time. Yeah. How do, guys, how do you guys think about insurance for your life for getting your portfolio? Do you guys have disability insurance? Do you have life insurance? Are you, would you consider yourself to be overinsured? I, I, I sort of wonder, my philosophy is the same in both. I'm just sort of wondering if you have different philosophies and how you think about insurance for yourself and your family versus Term life, cheapest shit I can get, but yeah, enough disability. that if I die, my wife can, you know, bury me and be okay. Do do I don't disability have disability well, now. Well. Disabilities, it's already pricey. already disabled. Yeah, mentally for sure. You can't get it. <laughs> don't qualify. <laughs> hey, fellas, that's pre-existing condition. <laughs> that's time. We've made it. All right, I got asked a question on Twitter that somebody wanted me to address it. Chris, go. I'll, I'll get to it. It's a Formula One question. We'll get to it next week. I'll uh, I'll do it next week. Sounds good. Same crew next week. I think oh, we're going to force them again. Thanks. And I think Mike gets relieved. A lot of sword That's fighting. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>